0: It jumped up in value to 500 to 750 a pound.
1: So, how much would you make on a typical hold in profits?
0: On 30,000 pounds, 5 million. I have a vision right now in my head of looking down through a valley between two mountains. As far as I could see, were giant buds on tops of weed growing and shaking and blowing in the wind like this. No, dude. He opens my closet up, and I've got these four by three foot deep by by four and a half foot tall safes. Oh my Six goodness. of them stacked in there on top of one another. Six point seven million dollars cash. How much? Six point seven million dollars in cash. And
1: was that all of the money that you had at the time?
0: No, hell no. There was more in the attic, but they never searched the attic. <laughs> We're going to have to cut that out at the beginning. (laughs) Forget I said that, okay? Okay, so you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this thing, man. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Wide Awake podcast.
1: I am in Fort Myers, Florida, with Tim McBride, and Tim McBride is a former marijuana smuggler living on the edge of the Florida Everglades. From 1979 to 1989, Tim ran Southern Water's and the Caribbean with a band of modern-day pirates, known by locals as saltwater cowboys. At a very young age, Tim became the boss of an operation that was responsible for smuggling roughly 30 million pounds of marijuana into America.
0: Welcome to the studio Thanks, in your house. <laughs> welcome to my home. No, yeah, thank you for that introduction. That was awesome, man. Thanks for um, letting
1: me do it here.
0: Not at all. Glad to be here. Glad to talk to you. You know, your viewers, your people out there, give them a little bit of an education on the early Caribbean marijuana days, uh, the industry, that industry, rather. So, I mean, just to start off, I want to know. Sure. How long have you been growing that beard for? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I've been growing it since 2014, I believe, somewhere around in there. But, you know, I always have the occasion to chop it because if I don't cut it, you know, if I let it continue to grow, by this time I'd be, you know, it'd be tangled around my shit and I'd be falling around everywhere, you know, tripping and shit. So, uh, But uh, the intention was not to cut my beard until I got my book published. And just before we get
1: into any of the the main topic, you know, I want to know what were you like growing up?
0: Uh, just an average, ordinary, everyday kid, man. I mean, I would just, out of you know, my father was uh, 82nd Airborne in in uh, North Carolina, a paratrooper jumping on airplanes, which is something I'll never do because if that bitch is landing, I'm landing with it. Um, but, um, yeah, so he wound up, you know, as we got older, got a sales job in the Midwest. Four years I went through high school in the Midwest uh, in a town just north of Chicago between Chicago and Milwaukee called Lake Geneva or Delvin, which is right next door, went high school there, and I had the opportunity at one time, you know, and the uh, uh, fortunate to be asked to, to take a job with an entertainer uh, at that time and uh, was part of a group of other Hollywood entertainers at that time called the Rat Pack. They were Dean Martin. They were Sam Davis Jr. They were... Joey uh, Bishop. They were um, a couple of other guys that I can't remember off the top of my head, but my job specifically was working with Sammy Davis Jr. And I went out there for two years and my cousin drove his tour bus. That's how I got involved (laughs) in this, but that's a story to be read when you pick up the book and check it out. But um, that's where I was, you know, earlier on, you know, I just kind of fell into that. And once I got to understand how television worked and how movies worked, you know, that bubble was bursted. I mean, that burst for me. So I never viewed television and and, and film the same way. So I left there and I went back to Wisconsin of all places, because that's kind of where I was hanging out growing up, you know, seven, 18, I was, I was just turned, uh, um, 20, just going on 21. And I went back to Wisconsin. That's when a buddy of mine that I used to live next door to called me He had, living in Milwaukee at that time. That's when he gives me a call on the phone one day, and he says, hey, I'm moving to Florida tomorrow. I'm going to work with my brother and my, my brother-in-law and my sister. They, uh, they run one of the only fish houses on this little island down there in the, you know, up tucked in the northwest corner of the Everglades National Park among this place called the crazy place called the 10,000 Islands. And he says, and we live on one of these little islands. and I'm going to get a job on a on a boat that catches stone crabs. And I said, he said, did you want to go? And I said, hell yeah, man, let's go. So I just packed <laughs> everything in my Cobra and off we, you know, off we go again.
1: Did, at that point, did you ever do any kind of work in that industry?
0: No, 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 not at all. I mean, I, I was the I was that kind of kid that you know that had learned earlier on that if an if an opportunity or something that appeared to be opportunistic you know came my way I was the first one to jump on board and say yeah let's do this because I never wanted to be that one guy or that person that said you know damn I wished I'd had done that you know I never wanted to kick myself in the wor- in the ass having said those words you know so I just went and did it You know, regardless, if it didn't work out, hell, I went back and started over again, just like I went to Hollywood. I went to L.A. Two years later, I'm like, screw these phony baloney. Fuck this shit. I know this, you know, I know what this is all about. So I left. You know, I I wasn't impressed by that. It's not
1: the kind of lifestyle that you like to live? No,
0: I don't, you know, these people are just, you know, they get up and they put their pants on like everybody else and they go to work and they act about, they portray someone else You know, someone else is who deserves the accolade that they're getting. That's something that
1: my my focus is with this podcast is people ask me, what do you do and what do you focus on? And the way I always say it is I don't want to speak to people playing someone else in a movie. I want to speak to the person that that actor is playing. Right. How did you get into the smuggling business?
0: That happened rather serendipitously, let's say it that way, because I didn't go on this little trek to Florida with with any aspirations of becoming, you know, what I what I had become or getting involved in what I became involved in. Um, when I got there, and even prior to getting there, occasionally my brother or um, Mark's brother-in-law, they'd come to visit for summer vacation or whatever, and they'd tell these goofy stories, and he'd always had good, some good smoke with him, you know, and... Um, so you hear these little stories, but when you get to the island finally and you start hearing that you a few more of these ghost ghost stories is all they are, you know at that time. And you know it goes to one ear and out the other because that's all it is really uh, until you actually become one of those ghosts. and uh, and, in, and in my case, I went down there uh, not unprepared. I know that um, Mark, my my buddy that had invited me down, his sister and brother-in-law were building a brand new house at that time. So I knew that I could have a, I could take a job as a tender. You know, if I didn't give a shit, I'm a brick tender, I'm a block tender, I'm hauling bricks for the fireplace and blocks and like this, just helping out building the house. And during that time, we're coming to the end of this end of crab season and they're bringing traps in and they're doing their thing. But Captain Billy had Mark working on the boat along with another guy who was from, from Michigan at that time. Well, um... Crew changeover in an industry such as that is is rapid. I mean, some guys work for two, three, four months and they quit and they leave. You know, they don't, you don't ever see them again because I mean it 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 that work alone will make a man out of you. Backbreaking work. Oh Jesus, I'm talking about yeah. I mean at that time and and Billy was the was a uh, I mean that industry was very lucrative and very I mean active at that time. Uh, stone crimes were being sold all over the world because they only grow in those southern waters around Florida, in the Keys and in those areas, and particularly in the areas where we were fishing here on the southwest coast of Florida. Um, just an example, our our little operation, I call it little operation, the captain and the two crewmen, between all of that, we, we're working 6,000 traps every season. Can you tell me about
1: the day that you started
0: smuggling? How did you get into it? <laughs> okay. Um, that goes right pretty much hand in hand. And, um, you know, uh, brilliant line of questioning though. Thank you, um, for making my job easier. Um, <laughs> the kind of work that it was, I mean, it only took him a week to break this guy's ass and he quit. <laughs> I mean, they worked him to death and he just couldn't take it anymore.
1: So one of the guys that was working on the boat quit um, the guy that was and on, you replaced him.
0: The Michigan guy. See, there was my guy, Mark, who yeah. we all, he, Billy knew we was, Thorne's brother and Nancy's brother-in-law and shit with he. You know, and the thing about it was was you just didn't come to the island and get a job, you know, without people going, who the fuck's this guy? Because it was
1: a very small place. It It was under 500 500 people people,
0: between two islands, and everybody knows everybody. And if somebody comes into town that doesn't, I mean, doesn't belong there, we know you're there. You know? But you come and you stick around long enough and you want to, you know, prove yourself, you want to do the work, and there's captains that are not hauling pot, there are captains that are seriously you know, stone crabbers, and our business was serious. I mean, you had to do the work. You you had to do the work during the day in order to do the work at night because you can't just do one and not the other.
1: Because it would get very suspicious.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, how are you fording all the fuel for the boat? How are you paying your crew? Mm. Where are you going every day? I mean, with no crabs coming in, you know, that kind of thing. So we had to do the work. The boat actually had to work in order to do the pot hauling at night. Well, this kid, they didn't know him. He was from Michigan. They didn't know anything about him, where he came from, so they just worked his ass to death made him quit. And then that's when he said, Timmy, come on. <laughs> We've got an opening on the boat. Come on, with you, me, and Mark, and, you know, let's work. <coughs> uh, and that's when the scenario was imparted to me about where you wake up early in the morning, so before sundown, yeah. before dawn, and you do your thing.
1: Well, And you, you thought you... We're going to be stone crab fishing.
0: Yeah, I thought, yeah, okay, here I go. I packed a lunch, and I got my crab boots, and I got the whole— I had to buy crab boots, and I bought the slickers and the whole, you know, nine yards because you get wet, you know, from the traps and the yeah. crap. That's all, I mean, I mean, it's nasty work, but it's tough work. But <clears throat> as we know, that wasn't the case. Well, no. I mean, I woke up, you know, in— uh, Typically, it takes anywhere from two to three hours or whatever because the boat's not, I mean, it's not a fast-moving vessel. I mean, it's a large 51-foot, you know, commercial fishing vessel, obviously not designed for more power than it is for speed, you know. Um, And um, it would take anywhere from, you know, two, three, sometimes three and a half hours or so to get to where we needed to go. So we would get on it like three in the morning, cast off and I would climb right in the bunk which was right in the wheelhouse and I'd go to sleep until it was time to get up and you know pull traps well I I woke up that first morning and the sun's already up and I'm thinking to myself well what they told me was that uh, we start at you know daybreak and the sun's up already and I leaned over and I looked out of the bunk like this and I looked up at Captain Billy and he had this big smile on his face like this and he says um guess what Timmy he says um uh, we're not going to pull stone crab taps today, but he says, we're going to go offshore tonight. We're going to, you know, screw around and, you know, and swim and dive and, you know, and, and jerk around and uh, unload a pot boat from Columbia later on. I said, <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Let's go. You know what and I mean you were just fine. I didn't have I mean there was what can I do? You know, there was nothing I, they knew I'd be okay with it, you know. It you was weren't
1: there, hesitant at all.
0: No, I said, let's go. You know, it was like one of those tongue in cheek moments for them because they already knew my partner and the captain Billy already knew I'd be cool with it, but they didn't want to spring it on me until I actually got out there. And that's when I said, you know, hey, guess what? <clears throat> so my first time ever working on that boat, I didn't even see a crab trap. You know, I saw um, we went. Uh, we went later off that night and unloaded uh, 15 tons off a boat from Colombia. It was 30,000 pounds we put on our boat.
1: 30,000 pounds your first time.
0: <coughs> 30 pounds of of uh, um, Colombian red bud, right from the jungle, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and as a kid, you must have loved that.
0: <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I mean, I was just like. I mean, there were no instructions on how to do this. There's no playbook, you know. You don't read on how to, you don't read up on how to, you know, how to unload a freighter from Columbia and then bring it into shore, that kind of shit, you know. I mean, I was just thrown right in the middle of it. It was kind of funny, you know, in in the way in which it happened. But um, we brought that that first 30,000 pounds in, you know, and, you know, once we go out to the boat, you know, a lot of times it isn't just pull up to the boat and they, you know, the shit comes raining down on you and you're loading your boat and shit like that. You know, it's a lot of times it's get up on this damn thing and help their crew get it from down below where they can comfortably throw it down onto us, you know, because they had to come across the Caribbean with it stuffed down underneath, you know. So
1: people would transport it to you and then you would take it the rest of the way. Right.
0: wherever, Whatever corner of the Caribbean the boat was coming from, whether it had been Jamaica, Venezuela, Colombia, South America, Panama, Belize, Honduras, you know, which... Um, uh, was British Honduras before it came Belize, you know, as well. Um, Any of those, any uh, country on the Caribbean rim that had weed available was where it was coming from. And we had connections in every one of those countries.
1: I think it's important to give some context to this because this was during the war on drugs in Miami. Yes. Right? So a lot of people that might be watching now, weed is more accepted and it's not seen as a hard drug. Right. But back then, the war on drugs was primarily for weed, right?
0: Yeah. It was a big part of it. It was considered by Reagan to be the scourge and the downfall of, of America but at that time.
1: Can you just give us brief context as to what was going on in Miami at that time? Right. Why was there such a big
0: war on drugs? This, all through the 70s and into the early 80s, Um. Was a huge um, influx of cocaine from South America into into Miami um, through the Bahamian islands and those in those windward and uh, and other islands off the you know off off the coast of uh, of Southwest Florida or Southeast Florida at that time, and um, what wound up happening was that there was so much cocaine coming into Miami that. Um, Um, under the guise, a lot of it, under the guise of one woman. She was considered at the time um, the godmother of cocaine. And she was actually the person who introduced and brought Pablo Escobar and Carlos Slater out of the gangs in Medellin. They were selling marijuana with the gangs in Medellin. Brought them out of the gangs in Medellin, taught them how to gather the coca paste, and create the, the uh, cocaine hydrochloride, which they used to, you know, as them as a conduit into the United States.
1: And what was her name again?
0: Her name was Griselda Blanco.
1: And how were people smuggling it in? Because people get very creative right. with this kind of stuff. Right. I mean, I watched a documentary, and a lot of the time they would put the weed under the boats as well, um, not just in the boats. There was like little storage facilities under. There was also, I mean, I know Pablo Escobar built submarines, right? Which were just like the most dodgy things I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and you would, you yeah. I mean, what other ways would people smuggle it in besides that was, from boats?
0: That was primarily the 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 uh, the preferred method when it came to cocaine, because the volume of cocaine was a lot less than the volume of marijuana. An equivalent amount of cocaine. Uh, of marijuana versus cocaine would probably... Um, in terms of money. In maybe. terms of size, you know, and value, you mm-hmm. know, a billion dollars worth of cocaine would probably fill this little room we're sitting in here right now. A billion dollars of marijuana would fill the entire um Housing complex that I lived <laughs> in, <laughs> so you know it made it a lot easier for them to do to use the, si- the type of subterfuge that you're explaining in the cocaine industry, because you know using them under you know putting them on and attaching them to the hollow boats, and then when the boat seems to be approached by an un- unintended vessel, they could let that cargo go and sink to the bottom, but mm. still have radio contact with it, and eventually just push a button and it would float to the surface you know, and they could find it again, you know, those types of things. Um, They got very inventive in ways of doing that. The cocaine seizures went from, you know, a couple hundred kilos to, you know, tons at a time. And I mean, a
1: ton of cocaine
0: is worth unbelievable unbelievable amounts amounts of money. But at the same time, while that focus was taking place over in Miami and... Miami's local government pleading with the United States government to intervene in some fashion to help them with the problem that was created by the cocaine industry. Um, our industry was flourishing as well because the focus was more on that. It was more on Miami. Than what it was and on us. And you guys were doing it
1: from some random town in Florida.
0: Some little town that had under, little island. under 500 people and half the town was involved in it. <laughs> and who were you working for? He was one of my friend's fathers. Yeah. In Colombia? Oh no 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 no! In 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 in, in, in the islands, um, w- what was taking place was the the um, we were what was considered third generation pot haulers. We were the kids. The second generation pot haulers were our fathers and uncles and older cousins and grandfathers and people like that, who in turn learned that trade from the generation before them which was, like I said, our grandfathers, and it was their uncles and their cousins and their, you know, their older cousins and people like that. So as it was passed down from generation to generation... They put us kids out there working because, I mean, the adults aren't the ones out there moving 800 to 1,070 to 80-pound bales twice Getting a Getting the
1: young kids to haul
0: the, it. Yeah, <laughs> get the kids to do the work, hey, man. Hey,
1: son, can't you just come over <laughs> here and just lift that bale of marijuana for me, please? <laughs> my, my back's a bit delicate today. And that's pretty
0: much how it was. But
1: who know? was the actual source? Where was it being grown? That's uh, what I the mean. The
0: majority of what we took it, or uh, had brought into the country at that time was from Colombia. And it was taken from one family. First time I had worked for him, I didn't care who he was. I didn't even know it was his, mu- his, his shit and his money I was working with, you know, because I told the two guys in Miami, Carlito and Leo, the two guys I was working with, that I don't care who they are. I don't want to be introduced to them. I don't want to know them. You bring me their money. Tell me what they want, and I'll put it on your doorstep. Because I was getting paid two different ways to, to do this scenario. One was to do it all cost you $175 a pound for me to go to wherever country you wanted your shit from because I had a family connection there that I could get it for, for $10 a pound. $10 a pound. So is that how much you were buying it for? I was paying $10 a pound for it. So this Colombian cowboy or this Cuban cowboy over in Miami had $300,000. He wanted 30,000 pounds of marijuana. I could literally spend three hundred thousand dollars and buy him fifteen tons of Colombian red, and by the time that ten dollars a pound material reached the United States waters, it jumped up in value to five hundred to seven hundred and fifty a pound.
1: So, how much would you make on a typical hold in profits?
0: On thirty thousand pounds, five million. But out of that five million, I paid the crew that helped me smuggle it. And how much was each member of the crew getting paid? Because this is
1: a high risk job. This is not different amounts. You're not working at the bank yet. Yeah, no, no,
0: no. They were getting paid really, really well. Danger pay. Yeah, danger pay. And even the minor jobs were were paid were paid very well. Because I wasn't greedy. I didn't care. I was making millions. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, I mean now we're now we're getting into three different stories here about, Yeah, let's you know, let's
1: actually go back before we get into that.
0: Back to the families where I was getting it from in Colombia, yeah, you know, yeah. and that sort of thing. Well, they were generational. They were handed down to me by the families that I had taught me and the families that had taught them because the original family, the original pot hauler, uh, was a man by the name of Lauren Touch Brown. Um, if you want to, you know, look him up and, 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 and find a, a very interesting and a very wonderful, wonderfully kind man who, um, was, you know, at that time, were given a bit of an ultimatum from the United States government as far as his being one of the founding families in this little island area who, whereby if you had taken somebody from one of the larger cities in North America Pull them off the street. There was some, you know, stockbroker or whatever, lawyer, a or doctor, or whatever like that. Take them and put them off in the middle of uh, uh, the Everglades between on 41 between Everglades and Miami and say, okay, make a living. You know, there it is. They die. That's literally what these people did. They found this place, made a home out of it, learned how to make a living from it, learned how to burp you know, take the plumes for birds because at that time in the in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, the women in New York liked those big fancy hats with the plumes and the feathers out of them like that. Where in the hell was that coming from? Well, it was from people like this. No more alligator hunting because they're, you know, hunting them down to almost extinction or whatever when they used to hunt alligators for food. Mm-hmm. No more turtles. The nets had to be a certain size. You can only really catch so many fish and the National Park had taken over, set their boundaries and at some point in time in the '60s, early '60s, wanted to extend the boundaries of their park to include the two passes it took to get into Everglades and into Chacalusky Island. They wanted that that to be national park area that you had <laughs> to pass through. Well, it was such a convoluted message, and and and. Um, um, bullshit wording that they put together within the body of the of the language of the of the thing they were writing, the legislation they were writing, whereby you couldn't legally bring the catch that you caught through the national park. It had to come from some other had to come through some other way. Well the only two ways to get to these islands in any of the fish houses to process your catch was through Chukalisky Pass or Indian Key Pass. And they were trying to make those national park. Well, they said, okay, you want to keep putting all these restrictions on us and making life difficult for us when we eked out a living and made this town possible and made it at one time the county seat of here in Collier County. It was that big of a deal. I mean, the, the town became actually became something. And it was because of the original founders that had the balls to, you know, to frontier this mm-hmm. place. And now the government wanted to take it apart. That's when they said, okay, well, here you go. We found a, play, a way to, you know, su- um, supplement our income, if it were, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of when it took it took over, and Totch was the original, went to Panama with his crew and up and around the corners into Columbia and up the rivers to find out where they were growing and how to do it and how to take it over, and it took him trial and error for a number of times and over the course of maybe like several years and finally figured it out. He was one of the first, one of the originals, and then he taught, you know, he was coming into Miami at that time, you know, in those early days. And then when cocaine started to become the thing, the, the two passes to get from the Caribbean to Miami area were the Mona and the Lisa, or the Windward and the, uh, um, um, the the Windward Pass. And they were becoming, you know, watched over by the United States and the government because of the cocaine traffic. So he said, well, look. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry guys, we're <laughs> yeah. at Tim's house and he's got family. Yeah,
0: my little granddaughter's throwing a bitch, but it's okay. Yeah. Speaking of these two passes uh, becoming um, as clustered as they were, uh, that's when Tots decided that okay, we've got the what we call the the gap. The 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 only other pass into the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico is between the western edge of Cuba and the eastern edge of the Yucatan. Why don't you bring this stuff over there over to where I'm at in ten thousand islands? He says, dude, get that shit over there, man. We own it. <laughs> I mean I mean, you know, you've never seen such a thing in your life as this. And that's what started all the, the influx and the pot hauling and all this a sudden, you know, this kind of thing. Mm. Um, and um, which would bring us to your, you know, your next query as yes, to-
1: how you got it. Uh, how you would store it? What was it like driving back with it?
0: There's a, there's a common misconception about you know um, those days and and the pot hulling that was going on. And never once did I ever say, and will I ever say that we were the only ones ever hulling pot? You know, we were the ones that did the most. You know, I mean, you know, we were yet, but we weren't. There were a lot of guys and and gals out there doing their share. You know, so a lot of them got busted. You know, I'm sorry to say. But a lot of them made it through, you know, and bless and God bless you for doing your part, you know. But the story that I'm imparting is, is simply a story about a small town who learned how to integrate it into a way of life mm. spanning these generations and running those southern waters in Caribbean with literally with impunity, you know. And um, the method by which it would work was simply, you know, like I said, our boat would go off and get its load. And a lot of times we've got as much as... You know, we can have as much as 40,000 pounds of shit on this boat. And at this point, we've got, you know, it's not hidden. It's not hide it down below and stuff it in the holes and that kind of shit. It's stick a bale of pot anywhere you can stick one <laughs> on this fucking boat that's 51 foot long because it's, you know, it's designed to haul crab traps, you know, and it's set up like that. I mean very perfectly designed by that nature to haul bales of pot. You know, because you stack them on there just like you can crab traps. And we had them on the bow, as high as you can get them. We had them on the sides and up to the windows, just so maybe you can see out the windows. And on the top of the wheelhouse, we had them even stacked up there, as many as we could stack, just high enough so the radar could turn and do its thing. Where would you say? On top of the pile. <laughs> you know, the captain is in the wheelhouse. We never shoved anything in the wheelhouse because that's where the captain is now. Once we get the boat loaded... And we turn away from this vessel, and we put the throttle to this 12 this this turbo 12 twin diesel um, powerhouse of an engine that's turning a six to eight hundred pound brass prop, and it's moving this chugging this forty thousand pounds through the water. It's barely moving. It's moving maybe four or five knots, six knots at the most. And we always had a chase boat that we, what we called it, it was a chase boat riding along next to us. And that boat was there for our getaway. It was for our protection. And the captain in the wheelhouse, while he's dialed into the radar, you know, he's face down in that mask and he's watching and he's listening to the radar and he's checking it out. We've got a red light in the wheelhouse. So when you walk into the wheelhouse, you can still see, but the red light doesn't deter from your night vision. So when you turn around and walk outside, you're not blinded and you have to readjust to the light. That's why you see in a lot of movies when the submarine goes, you know, red light comes on. It's a night vision. Mm. It keeps their night vision so when they walk into our dark room, they can still see, mm. you know, that sort of a thing. And the captain, he's dialed in. And if he happens to see within, then you know, we had a radar that could go 50 miles. And if he sees a target within that range... He can keep an eye on it and watch it for a little while. And if it gets a little closer, he can shrink down to, you know, 45 miles, 40 miles, and you know 35. Coming for and you. if it keeps coming a little bit closer, 20 miles, time to start thinking about getting off this goddamn boat because, you know, they've got it. We're not out running them. So simply the owner of the boat wasn't Captain Billy. It was his dad. So all he had to do, and this was pretty much the same with every vehicle and vessel and, and that we used, was that whoever was running it full to wherever never owned it. The no owner was so never- they weren't
1: liable, and they could get the boat back. Exactly. Yeah.
0: They weren't responsible for what that had been involved in, and ultimately, after it's been used as evidence, they'll get it back which was a pretty smart deal. No, it was brilliant. Because <laughs> we could get off this boat, and there's, there's you know, this scorpion that it was – and there's a picture I'll show you of mine. It was a three, 600 horsepower that would probably do about 80 mile an hour for your butt even you hit the seat. That's how we get away. Let them have it.
1: And did you ever have to escape police? Never
0: had to get away from them that way.
1: So they weren't really on it, eh?
0: No. We we had our shit together too much, and the, the way we were working was – at such a sophistication of level that, you know, we had pretty much all of our bases covered, you know, and the older generations still had congressmen and senators and whatnot working with, within their little circles or what have you until they all wound up going to prison, and that's when I took over. But what happens is, you know, once we've got our load and we're chugging back in, we bring it up into what's called the outer islands of the 10,000 islands, and if you Google 10,000 islands or do any kind of a search, web search, You'll see and go to images to an overlay, and you'll see that this is a, a labyrinth of literally ten thousand islands. And it was built right in us kids' backyard. And and it's twenty-seven miles long by three miles wide, and it's just ins and outs and turns. So there must in be very, very small blind islands, hey? waterways and just yeah, I mean, yeah, very small. Some not some the size of this area we're sitting in. Yeah. You know, just like but, little Little beaches, basically. And you can, well, it, until you we get to the outer islands, then you start seeing the beaches. And you can have your own little spot on an outer island with a just perfectly ringed white sand and spend the day partying and picnicking and have an island for yourself to, to you know, water ski around and just have the coolest time. It was a great place to live, a great place to grow up as a kid. But an even better place to haul pot to if you were trying to get, you know, hundreds and even thousands of tons of shit in.
1: Because if someone was following you, you, they would just get lost in it.
0: Lost. You know, and we've done that on purpose before. We've had guys chase us literally on purpose, chase the guys and have them lose them and sit two or three islands over and watch them because they don't know where the hell they are. They're not coming out of there. you know. And then have guys just watch them and say, well, they're still there. you know. They don't know how to get out of there. Just keep working.
1: <laughs> how much money were you making at the beginning?
0: In the beginning, doing the job that I was doing, um, like the first two jobs I said I had to, the first two days I worked on that boat, I never pulled a trap. It was 15 tons the first night, but I didn't tell you the second night I got on that boat, the day I got on that boat, we didn't work again. We pulled 22 tons that second night. So I was already at 37 tons of shit before I'd even pulled a trap, you know. (laughs) And I was given rookie pay, $5,000 per night. Just because now that the captain understood he had a crew that was willing and able to do this type of work, my pay then from that point on went according to the size of the load. And I was averaging anywhere from fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a night. I just turned twenty-one. And we're working anywhere from two, three nights a week.
1: How would you store that money? I mean, you you can't just go to the bank and say here's hundreds of thousands of dollars.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. We had
1: So what would you do with it?
0: The older generations were were um we're very aware of the type of money we were making and we were very, very aware that kids are kids and kids will be kids if they're not reined in. It was important for them to under have us understand how absolutely important it was for us to, to grasp the fact of how to spend money and not have anything to show for it. What is the kind of stuff that you can buy that you don't have to take a receipt for? Well, there's certain things that you can do that don't allow you to do that. Plus, you can spend as much as up to ten thousand dollars without the government or the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, having to be made aware of it, and the business who gave that money, who you gave that money to, having to declare it. You can spend up to ten thousand. After ten thousand, ten thousand dollars and fifty cents, ten thousand dollars and twenty-five cents, and they have reported. to report it. But up into that amount. You can pay and buy anything you want to, and they don't have to report it. So you're clean aware of that. But spending $10,000 at a time is negligible when you're getting paid hundreds of thousands. I mean, you, there's only so much shit you can buy. 22.2 2 pounds of hundreds, that's a million dollars.
1: Why would you? How
0: do you know like how much money weighs? Uh, just by weighing it. I mean, a lot of people at the time were, were privy on how to weigh the money because regardless of the denomination of the bill here in the United States— It weighs a gram. But, I mean, why weren't you just counting it? Because it took too fucking long. (laughs) Dude, imagine. I mean, this was one of the reasons why, and this is some topic we would have talked on here sooner or later about. I'm spending ultimately, you know, because of how, you know, when we took over, we changed the whole industry. We changed how we were doing things. The loads actually got bigger. Because now we now they understood how to compress these loads into workable bales of, I mean, hard pressed bales that weren't coming at us like that in the early days. They were like somebody put their foot in the bag and taped it shut and then mm. sealed it shut with um, burlap. And by the time we got them, a lot of them were like shake was flying out of them and there was seeds everywhere in this shit, mm-hmm. you know. And then once that got cleaned up and learned how to make them all even all the same size and they were stacking and fitting perfectly, now the loads got heavier and the pace got bigger. So now my paydays go from a 30,000-pound, which was, by the way, I never saw a load that small ever again after that day. 30,000 pounds was just too small. It didn't exist. We were at 22. We were at 25. We were at 30. We did 55 tons one night. Surely a boat can't hold fifty-five tons. Like a well, small the boat, boat bringing it to us. I've seen as much as two and three hundred thousand pounds on some of these freighters.
1: They must. Oh, they're big boats. Yeah. Oh, these
0: are four hundred feet. If they're a goddamn foot, okay. <laughs> boats. But you know, we're sending them to get loaded. These loads are paid for. We've got buyers in the Miami that have already paid for the shit. We're just trying to get it from here to there to get it to them. So rather than send. 25 boats to get this shit and, you know, send one. This was in the earlier days when you could do this sort of thing. You could have a boat, you know, with 200,000 pounds and approach it two and three times. Well, as the years went by and the sophistication of the law got just as sophisticated as we needed to be, approaching a boat more than once was really kind of a, I mean, something you didn't want to do. So you would go back and forth and get... If way. it had 200,000 pounds on it, there was our boat, another boat, another boat, another okay. boat, taking turns, you know, going and getting the shit and unloading it over at this guy's place and at this guy's place and at this guy's place. It was actually one of us guys' jobs You know, we did them in rotation to go around to each of these offload spots around the island, even in Everglades, and pull out the plants that had started to grow from the seeds that were coming across from this shit, you know, that was being brought across the dock. Because the seeds would fall everywhere. Seeds were everywhere, dude. This was, this wasn't back when there was seedless pot. This was, Sometimes, my, my mom smokes weed. I used to smoke
1: weed. and when the seeds are lying around, I would take them and we've got a really old next-door neighbor and I'd
0: throw them over to the house and start growing everywhere. See if they're viable, you know, yeah, throw that fuck around there, you know. But in those days, that kind of weed, the Caribbean weed, was seedy. The less seedy stuff came from Jamaica, which they call the virgin bud. Jamaicans call it virgin bud. Well, virgin buds typically means it's the female virgin bud, which everybody's growing in the States today which is the cream of the crop. You want the female plant. You don't want the male plant. You keep his ass as far the fuck away from this plant as you possibly can because mm. it will cross and contaminate it. It will never get to its full potency. So you, st- you deprive it of that pollination aspect. And you, they put all their effort into the plant rather than into seeding and, and, pre- and propagating you know, repropagating themselves.
1: Did you so, ever visit the the place where the weed was growing?
0: Oh yeah, shit, yeah. <laughs> what was that like? More than once, man. How, I mean, how big were the fields? Oh, it's I mean, I can I have visions. I have a vision right now in my head of looking down through a valley between two mountains and about maybe a quarters up the side of the mountain and as far as I could see. As far as I could see were giant buds on tops of weed growing and shaking and and blowing in the wind like this.
1: Did you ever run through them with your arms open?
0: Oh, well, we didn't (laughs) have to do it. I mean, that was like, I mean, to do that would have been, it, it was bad enough having to cross this guy's field to get to where we needed to be to see his next field because just after a half hour of walking through this stuff, you could take it on your skin and roll into hash balls that's how nasty sticky this and this shit was when it's time to get picked and you know it was it was just crazy because funny you should say that and a similar type of thing would happen to us as we're unloading these vessels when we're you know in, in the earlier days when whoever was else was in control when I didn't have control and I was working you know as a as a crewman unloading a freighter and I, like I said it would be oft, oft more than often we would have to get on that big freighter and help get the load out of the hole because, I mean, you got 200 300,000 pounds in there, and a lot of times you have to build a pyramid out of the stuff for the guys to stand on and bucket brigade it up to the guy on top where he could reach somebody at the hole to pull it up on deck. That's how much. So you're using the weed as a ladder to get to that other weed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy because we're not using the hook and the crane and the and the nets and the, you know, just screw it's, that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a race against. T- the sun, to get the load that you can get with enough time to get back inshore, get this shit into, this, and, and then I'll tell you exactly how it works here in a second. To get that load out, but point being, as as far as this part of the story goes, you'd have to take turns in the hole because the engines are running. They stop 24-7. They don't stop. And this weed is becoming, um, and, and it's starting to, in a fashion, do what a pile of mulch would normally do, would self-combust. It's generating its own heat. And that fucking weed down there is just 200, 300 pounds of it's doing that. So it's your job to get it out of there as quick as you can. And and it's literally work your ass until you puke. Get a drink of water and work till you puke some more. And then change places with a guy on deck who comes down and takes your spot. And you keep unloading until the, until the job's done. And then you pull away and you bring the stuff into the shore where where you kill the engines because you're running in the dark, and you kill the engines, and the shore crews already, already in these islands. There's probably 25 or 30 of them, these smaller boats that are 25, 20 feet, 22, 25 feet. They're wide boats with shallow drafting bottoms on them, and the majority of them have 200, twin 235-horsepower Evinrudes that have vertical and horizontal trim. So they can actually take those props and pull them up, right up to the bottom of the boat. And as long as that prop will make it through the water, that boat's going to make it through the water. So we can go through the shallows. And these guys got 30, 40 bales on them. And they're coming out like flies on a garbage can. There's 25, 30 of these, depending on if there's our boat and another boat and another boat loaded. I mean, there's 25, you know, 30 boats coming and making as many trips to where we come from, from the little island and literally put this shit and stuff it into one, two, or three of my buddies' houses that we've taken all the furniture out of. <laughs> so you would store it at your guys' houses? I mean, yeah. Fill the house full. Bathroom, bedroom, dining room, kitchen, you know, living room, playroom. So where were your parents during all of this? My parents lived, you know, far away, in, thousand miles away. Did, did anyone know? ever just
1: walk into that place and just be like, what is going on here?
0: Never happened. Because, like I said, you don't just walk in there and nobody knows you. There's people
1: watching, yeah.
0: And nobody, because there's everybody, I mean, half the town's involved with it. The other other half of the town is not stupid, but they're your neighbors. They're your friends. We're not shooting guns. I mean, never in once in the years that I did this did I ever see a gun but one time. Once, and it was never fired. It was just shown to me, pretty much handed to me, and I was just carrying it. That was my first trip to Columbia. That's a funny trip. I'll tell you about that one. But this is the scenario by how it all worked. You get it into this house, and some of the vehicles that would be driving this stuff, the next day during the broad daylight when the sun comes up is when it makes its way to Miami. So from sundown to sunup is when it makes it to the island. From sunup to sundown is when it leaves the island in broad daylight because we were masters in what, they had called masters of plain, hide in plain sight. Who in their right mind would ever expect coming out of a town of just under 400 people, 40,000 pounds of marijuana is being run out of that town all day long. Who would ever? I mean, nobody ever expected it. You know, so it just happened. I mean, like in nine times out of 10, my guys are waving at the laws they're going by. The sheriff, hey, how you doing? Did did you ever feel
1: bad about how much money you were making? Because you get people that work their whole lives and don't see that kind of money. It
0: it was never perceived in that context, to be honest with you. But now that you're sitting here trying to, um, you know, trying to make me feel ashamed of... <laughs> no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to do. That's not what I'm trying to do. That's
1: not what I'm trying to do.
0: <laughs> no, I understand. I'm just pulling your... I'm just sitting with you, It was just man, a, a question no, that came to No, it's a valid mind, question. Yeah. It's understandable, you know, and, you know, coming and I've never quite viewed it from that context, but it's an interesting way to view it, you know, but, you know, had, you know in retrospect, had I been able to, you know, honestly and without inhibition share more wealth than I was sharing at that Mm. time without being ridiculously noticeable. I mean, I would literally be driving into town to go to a club with a buddy of mine whose truck that I didn't really want to show up at the club in and without any trying to insult them in any way, say, you know, dude, pull in, pull into this dealership right here, this Nissan, and I know every dealer that was selling cars in town and, you know dude, pick out a truck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> pick out whatever truck you want. And, and just within five car. minutes we'd, buy, we'd drive out of there with it because the owner knows me. He knows I'm good for it, you know. I'll come back and pay for the fucking thing or I'll give him cash right there for the damn thing. And he knew that if it was more than $10,000... <clears throat> how to go about depositing the money that I gave him for the purchase what, like
1: of different times they would deposit it yeah all.
0: every day sp- deposit a little less than ten thousand if it was a twenty thousand dollar truck you know in those days trucks weren't very expensive we're talking about 80s you know if you spent thirty thousand dollars you were buying a mammy ass truck you know <coughs> excuse me but so you, you were taking care of the people around you? I would take care yeah. of people, you know. And if I had literally backed the money that I had given away to people, because I give money away without ever, ever expecting to get it back. then I don't want it back. I got enough, you know. I'm trying to make room in my attic for more, you know. But this wasn't what I was imparting to them. It was just Tim being Tim, mm. you know, not... Not for any pat on the back or just, you know, any accolade of any kind, yeah. just because I felt like doing this for my friend. And I carry that same type of, you know, integrity with me with regards to this story. I'm just one cog in a very giant wheel, man. You know, I can, I can tell you about my point of view of it and how it all worked for me mm. and how I perceived it all taking place, but I guarantee if you talk to one of my other crew guys or anybody that had any significant involvement within the inner workings of and, you know, the sophistication of which it was we were doing could offer you a, uh, a fresh, different, far different point of view other than the one I'm giving you, mm. you know, which is an amazing thing about this. And one of the more interesting things about, I think, about the story is the simple fact that for for nearly 40 years— no one within this United States had any idea whatsoever that Everglades City and Chakaloski, between the two of them, just under five hundred people, was the international marijuana smuggling hub of North America. And you were <laughs> at the center of all of and it. And I tripped and fell right in the middle of it. That <laughs> that type of uh, of of, of Recognition or accolade, for lack of a better word, was not given to them until this history became, you know, no, fact. Yeah, and it was, you know, my story is just one of several stories that come out of there because, you know, it, when they when you talk about, you know, when people make the analogy um, by saying, you know, it takes a town or it takes a village you know, to raise a person. Well, in this ta- in this case, it literally takes a village. To raise a crop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to raise everybody's expectations with regards to the, uh, um, the uh, demand. You know, it wasn't like we were shoving this shit down anybody's throat. Yeah. It was just, I mean, 20, 30 tons, 40 ton loads was all we knew as kids. We didn't know anything any different. We didn't know there were smaller amounts, you know, available to us what was the
1: best part of that job
0: the best part of it
1: what was the best part about smuggling marijuana
0: i think uh running offshore to offload of a freighter a freighter
1: you just love the process of getting just it.
0: the yeah i mean just the uh, uh the anticipation of you know the type of stuff that you might come across or just just the the the, the crazy ways by which i've seen it come t- into this country I mean, I have literally seen it come in so many fucking ways it would blow your mind. I mean, I've seen it come, like I said, on freighters that were 400 feet long that you couldn't even... Their rails were so high you couldn't even throw a rope up to them. They were that high. You couldn't tie off. Captain had to stay right there next to them. Um, I've seen it packaged in, in you know, s- so many different ways and, and so many different uh, ways that uses of packaging itself. We were moving literally so much cannabis out of South America that we had gone from what was originally being used, which was prevalent because Canada's major, one of its major exports is coffee. A lot of the burlap um, bags that this stuff was pressed into had coffee insignias on them as they're stitched shut well all of a sudden we stopped seeing coffee bags and now we're seeing the more um modern take on the burlap which was the uh nylon kind of a mesh that almost looked like a burlap type an affair but it had purina which is like purina dog chow you have this in your country I have no idea. It's a brand of dog food. I don't think we have it. It's a brand of dog food. Just, just to say for those of you that aren't aware of it, that's made here in this hemisphere for for your pets, your animals. We always knew it as Purina dog chow you buy for your your doggy and your cat at home, or you know Purina cat chow, or you know something to that effect. Well, all of a sudden we're seeing these giant bales that are packaged in these burlap bags that say Purina monkey chow, or Purina horse chow, or some of them had Purina lion chow. Well, we didn't realize or know even at that, until that, that period in time that, that Purina company made chow for zoos. They're selling zoos, piles and piles and bags and bags of lion chow, elephant chow, cow chow, zebra chow, all this stuff. Now we're getting their bags. They're running out of coffee bags. They gotta start taking them from, you know, Purina. And it was just that way. It was just so much stuff coming out of it. It was coming. I've seen it come in, you know. I mean, even the guys in uh, we were working with the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church out of Jamaica. And their religion obviously was, you know, joint, their part of their religion was to smoke ganja. You know, even the little kids, they're, you know, this part smoking ganja. It was just part of the way of their life they were running out of material to package their shit in because there was a point in time at which, you know, during this early 80s where um, the uh, Jamaican government was was solely dependent on the exportation of ganja. That was their main export. That supported the country. And that carried on for a number of years until they asked got into a position where they needed, you know, aid of some sort from the United States in, in some fashion or another. That's when the United States government said, okay, yeah, you clean up this ganja crap. Yeah, we'll help you out. Well, they had to stop the end of, you know, the, the transportation of ganja. But there was so much coming out. I've seen it in packed in Marlboro boxes, Marlboro c- cases, cigarette boxes. Marlboro cigarettes. You know what them, those are? Yeah. I mean, yeah. in. in literal boxes that said Marlboro they looked like a giant pack of Marlboro but within them was the the weed was packaged in brick forms you know but it was bricked in there like Marlboro boxes was just craziness how we've seen this stuff come across
1: during your time working as a smuggler I'm sure you had quite a lot of near-death experiences did that I mean did, did you ever have a time where you were like this is it I'm gonna die
0: uh no you know what and it's, it's interesting you should say that because you know I had done a I had done a um, had done a, um, a documentary for uh, for Viceland. I don't know if they've played Viceland in South Africa Vice for, news, yeah. Vice, Vice. yeah mm. they had done a shot here in Everglades with me for three days doing a documentary on my story and they asked me that very question and the only retort that I have to it is simply I never. In the whole time of ever being involved in this, did I fear for my life? The only time I ever feared for my life was when the United States government got involved in it, and and they were the first ones that ever aimed a gun at me. So you you were only scared of them. I was always scared of them. I was I wasn't was never really afraid of them, you know, in the sense of being ooh, but always cognizant aware that you know we were doing things right, we were doing mm-hmm. things proper. And we always had our bases covered when it came time for, say, we got, you know, six or eight at one time houses literally loaded, slap full on that 129 acres. There's literally nine houses stacked as full as you can get them with bales of weed. And we're running out of there. And it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, an entity that is supposed to be that aware, and that keen on what it is they're doing, not really understanding that and not realizing about, you know, the magnitude of that which is going on. They had, literally, they had no clue, which was w- what made That's it. That's kind of
1: unbelievable, hey?
0: It is. It was which kind of made it kind of rather easy for us. But we always knew that they're, you know, they were there. They have their own little sources and their ins and outs and their little ways of catching people, which is obviously how we ultimately got, you know, wound up getting our our just dues. But there was, you know, it was incredible that how, you know, when I describe our crew as being anywhere from, you know, half a town, 250-plus people involved at one way or another... But when you start working other towns and islands and crews up the coast, and there were four others, there was Goodland Island, there was Marco Island, there was Naples, and there was a Pine Island crew. And each crew has anywhere from 50 to 60 people at least or more working at one time. Because when we're unloading these boats, like they're parked out there like a parking lot, man. We can't get to them fast enough. We've got five crews working on this stuff trying to get it in. That's literally how much stuff was coming into this United States. Through South Florida, nobody had a freaking clue. It's just, I mean, even still to to hear myself, to hear it come out of my mouth like that.
1: That's the thing that I wanted to say was that it doesn't, like when you talk about quantities that you were carrying and transporting, it doesn't really, your brain can't fathom it because when most people buy weed, Right. It's in a little banky. Yeah. You don't think about where it comes from, no. how it got here. I mean, a, like a 40-ton load or a 10-ton load. Yeah. It's... That's just, I mean, that's enough wheat to last 100 people 10 <laughs> lifetimes. Exactly. But you were, you were mentioning a trip to Colombia just now. I want to know, what, what was the craziest trip you ever went on to Colombia or during your time as a smuggler?
0: That really would have been really would have been my first trip to Columbia. (coughs) It was to, um, excuse me for that. I have to take a bit of a sip.
1: Synchronized water break.
0: Yeah. When I first started working with my two partners in Miami, Carlito and Leo, they were actually the only two people I ever wanted to meet in Miami. Like I might have mentioned this earlier, I don't want to know anybody. You know, just bring me their money, tell me what they want, I'll go get it. I'll give it to you. You give it to them, do whatever you need to do, and then you pay me, that kind of thing. Well, they had the first time I had met them, first time they had met me, it was a bit of a test thing for them. They wanted and it was another small load, it was thirty two thousand pounds, I think, or something like that. Tiny, yeah. Yeah. Well, in our in our realm of the you know, of world, uh, that's that was small. Yeah. And uh you know, because I have literally dumped out of my boots more than 10 people can smoke in their lifetime. And I mean, that's just cleaning up, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, they wanted to, somebody to go down, purchase themselves, make sure it's a good product, you know, weigh out the exact amount they want. They wanted me to be the one to personally take care of it.
1: What, traveling back and
0: forth? To go to Columbia and buy it and purchase it and do the whole, you know, and I charge two ways. Like I said, $175, I'll go anywhere in the Caribbean you want because I, I have a connection inherited that way. Or you can go anywhere in the Caribbean and buy yours for whatever you can get it for. If you can get it, you can never, You won't get it for less than I can get it for, I'll guarantee you. But you can, you know, you're more than welcome to do it. And I bring your boat out here. Tell me what latitude and longitude to meet you and when to meet you. And I'll take it from you and give it to you for $145 a pound. I'll do it that way. But most opted for me to do the whole thing because it was just, it was easier for them. There was no sweat off of their, you know, behinds for that. So, um that's pretty much how that would take place, you know, and um, whatever country they wanted, you know, which is would be where I would get it from, you know, but, um, you know, during that scenario, you know, there was always, there was always, like I say, there's always a safety valve of some sort built into this scenario. And I've never held, I've never put myself in a position where I have no way of, of exactly and responsibly, um, accounting for anything that may or may not happen to your stuff along the way. If I'm sending my boat to Columbia to buy your stuff, or I'm going to Jamaica, or I'm going to Central America, wherever I'm going to buy your stuff, one of your people is going to be on my boat with one of my guys who's only on that boat. He's not there to touch the weed. He's not there to, to, to help stack it. He's not there to do anything but count the number of pieces that get put on that boat of yours and while your guys counts while well, my guy counts when they both have the same count we leave and we come back to the united states when i get your shit to miami and you start counting your shit and i start counting you my shit along with you and our count works out i didn't take any of your shit you didn't take any of my shit so we all trust one another. There's always a thing built in there. You might have smoked a little
1: bit on the way, though.
0: Oh, yeah, but that's negligible, man. You <laughs> got to do that. That's funny, too. That's because, I mean, that was our job as, as you know, growing up as I did, going offshore to unload these freighters. That part of our job coming in was to test the shit. Make sure it was good. Because if it was killer shit, you got to tell the guys on the crew, help keep some of this stuff, man, you know. Because, like, a bale or two here and there was, was, you know, that was never any law. I mean, that wasn't... Who cared? Yeah. We're stacking it on this boat, like you said earlier, so much that if there's any kind of a a sea out there, yeah, one or two or three is going to roll off, you know? Big deal. You know, you just made millions of dollars off of nothing, Mm. really, as an investment. So you're going to piss ass about, you know, five, ten bales or some shit, you know, but...
1: So you were saying about the craziest
0: trip? Yeah, the craziest on. trip. So I go down there, and I, I said, okay, yeah, I agree to fly down there. So between the three of us, Carlito Leo and and myself, we had purchased a. It uh, only cost. It was rather cheap, but it was only about. I don't think it was even quite three million. We bought a uh, a corporate business lear learjet. It was three years old. It wasn't bad. It was beautiful. So you bought a jet to we fly a back jet, and forth. Yeah, to fly back and forth out of a private airstrip. There's a lot of air, air air parks, they call them in Florida. They're homes that are built with air parks in them, so you can land your jet or land your plane and pull up to your house mm. with your own hangar and you know, there were a lot of those in South Florida and we moved we had a house in one of those where we kept our jet. And the the flight to South America is only five hours, depending on, you know, tailwind or headwind or whatever like that, five and a half hours. I could literally be, you know, get on the plane real early in the morning, stay at the house that night, you know, get on the plane all tired, you know, crawling a bunk on the plane at, you know, 4 in the morning and be there by, what, 10 o'clock in the morning, spend the whole day doing what I need to do and fly back and be sitting across the bar from my girlfriend in Naples by 9 o'clock that night. She'd never know I left the country. (laughs) You know, it was just done that way, you know. And then that first time I flew down there, I didn't meet the boss, the guy who owned the plantation and who was in control of all the growers within his region, within his reach, uh, which was almost the entire northern coast of Columbia, damn near it, because he was rather connected. He wasn't a cartel, by any way. He was a family or a, a family guy who inherited all these different growers and the, the house and the th- mansion that he lives in from his father. So we fly on down there. I don't meet him that first day. I take a buddy with me named Ruben who speaks who speaks Spanish because I don't speak a lick of Spanish and this guy doesn't speak a lick of English. So between the two of us I've got my interpreter and he's got his. And um <coughs> excuse me. We're put in a uh an apartment at the back of the house which is probably four times bigger than, you know, eight times bigger than this place, you know, it's huge. And, um, you know, we have our own personal chef who came in and made us dinner, you know, and, and you know, women waiting on us hand and foot, you know, and uh, anything we wanted. And So we wake up the next morning. We have breakfast there at our suite. And, um, excuse me. <coughs> <coughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> the
1: cough always makes it worse, right? <coughs> Yeah. You always get ten times more high off the cough. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, so um, we have our breakfast, and, uh, you know, it's almost lunchtime, so it's time to meet the boss. So we go downstairs, and we meet Rico, his right-hand man, and here comes this guy bolting in through the front door, and he's a, you know, he's five foot two, maybe. He's not very big at all. He's got bit jet black hair pulled back in a ponytail, and uh, he's got a side belt on and a side arm, and he's got fatigues on and got combat, combat boots, but he's got a T-shirt on. And I'm watching him come through the front door, and he's, ah, blah, blah, blah. He's just a jolly old fellow, man. He's just having a good time, and he's talking Spanish. Nobody understands what he's saying except my guys and his. And he walks, and on the front of the T-shirt, there's a smiley face. And underneath it, it says, have a nice day, you know. So he goes, ah, they do, they do, walking past me, and I see on the back of his shirt is that very same smiley face, With a smoking bullet hole in its forehead and it said or else underneath of it, you know. Excuse me. So I'm thinking right away, this guy, you know, he's already got my sense of humor down, you know. This I like this guy already, right? So he starts blah, 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 about this in the house and how his family owned it and how that we know it was a really cool setup, man. It was set up in such a way where, you know, I described it in my book by Um, his father, you know, of course, being in the business that they're in, you know, even in er er earlier days, it was a bit of a shady business where he had the house built in such a way where you could be going down a stairwell that goes nowhere. It'll take you to a dead end. And if you follow your way back up and you take the wrong turn going up, it'll take you to a doorway that'll take you outside that you can't get back in the house in. Or it'll take you to a false room or it'll take you... This stairway will take you all the way around and bring you right back out to the same room you came in. That house was designed that way, so only the people in the house know the right way to go. So if somebody were to come in that house and attack you or try to, you know, uh, kidnap you or whatever, you would know which alleys or which staircases or which hallways to take. They wouldn't know. They'd be running all over, going all over the house, going different places and not finding your ass because you're already gone and they're still in there farting around trying to figure out that maze that you just left. It was a cool house. Um, his father was a very intelligent individual. It was actually modeled after an Indian and a, a castle over in India that, uh, that uh, at some age, I mean, this is like a thousand years ago, this guy built his house for that reason to keep, to confuse his enemies. He took that from that guy, which I thought was, was very cool. But
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
0: <laughs> but we, you know, we don't hang out too much with the guy, and he says, well, you know, that's enough of that. You know, the guy's interpreting it. Let's go see what you're here to see. So we all run out of there, and that's when they grab the. he grabs an AK. Rico grabs an AK. My guy grabs one, and I'm like, eh, well, fuck. Like a gun. A gun, AK-47. Yeah. And I grab one, too. You know, I mean, never had a gun in my life, never needed one. So I figured, oh, what the fuck? If they grab one, why not? I better, you know, because I'm in Columbia. I'm in a jungle, you know, without. I'm not going to kill anybody, obviously. I'm just going to, you know, do whatever because, you know, I'm not that guy. And uh, it turns out that we just get, you know, we drive for about 10 minutes and we get to this spot. And as soon as Rico, his partner, opens up that front door the most awesome smell of burlap and Colombian weed smacked me right in the face, brother. I could smell it, man. And you know, I And to this day, if anybody, I mean, if any of y'all can figure out how to make a cologne that smells like that. When
1: I was younger, I took, I, I used to, when I, back in my days, I, back in the good old days when I was four years ago, uh, I would take little perfume. When you were younger. Yeah, I would take perfume bottles from my mom. And... Uh, I would put um, a <laughs> bit of water in there and then stick some good weed in there and spray it on me, but it never it never got the smell. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Yeah.
0: That's crazy. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I'm enjoying the smell and we get out and, you know, and I'm pushing my way through these giant leathery leaves, man, and we come to this what looked like an ink and ruin. I mean, it's bales of weed, blocks of bales of weed stacked maybe 10 feet high, Um, you know, they're probably 25 feet wide and they probably go 50, 60 feet, each of these rows back into the jungle. Here's a row. Here's a row. Here's a row. He's got, I mean, tens of thousands of pounds of this shit and they're pressing it. They're packing it into bales. And it was my job as I'm there buying to, um, to actually, um, he had given me a six foot piece of bamboo with a piece of pipe in the end of it. And the end was cut, you know, kind of vertically like this, or, you know, so I could like a hair hypodermic. And I would stick these bales as I'm going along and use his pipe to test it. And I say, Oh, that does that's nice and sweet. It's good. It's nice. It's I like that. How many of those you got? And he's like kick two or three hundred of them down and I'd spray a particular mark on them the guys would continually take them and and weigh them. So when I had gotten to the the weight I was there to get, we'd end the day and we go back to the house and we party, right? And we'd have a, you know, because we're leaving tomorrow. So we get back to the house and, you know, and we're at the apartment and we're taking a shower and, you know, we're relaxing. We got some time before dinner and, of course, we've got, you know, They've got bowls of cocaine laying everywhere around the house, and I'm not a big coke guy.
1: So were they dealing other stuff and growing other stuff as well? They weren't just doing weed?
0: No, his entire operation was weed, strictly weed.
1: But he liked cocaine.
0: But, he, but yeah, I mean, every they all liked cocaine. I mean, everybody was doing it at some point or another, but that wasn't his main business because he, um, first of all, <clears throat> the area in which he was working was really too close to where the Cali was ta- w- was was operating, which was not to that too far from him. But the uh, o- o- Orwella brothers, who uh, who were originally with uh, the Medellin cartel, and I got this wrong in my last cast. I missed I, miss, I misspoke the name. Um, the Orwella brothers, um, uh, Rodriguez Orwella brothers. I had left the Medellin cartel when Pablo became an idiot and started shooting airliners out of this guy to kill congressmen, and they weren't even on the damn thing.
1: That was the craziest they thing. They left I and heard.
0: became the Cali cartel, the Orwella brothers. My guy that I worked with, you know, was their cousin. So he had that association, but he was never in that industry. That's a whole, I mean, to him, even that was a whole, we didn't want to get involved in that thing because that's too volatile. What he was doing was perfect. And he had guys like me. You don't get a better arrangement than a guy like me. I mean, I show up with cash and I don't leave without having paid for the stuff. You can't imagine how many pot haulers there were in those days that would take the load and not pay for it yet. And you know, they can't afford that. You know, I mean, 15 tons, a little over 150 tons that I was buying at any one time, that's 154, 55 million dollars.
1: You started off as a low level in this operation, right? Um, and you, like you said, you slowly built your way up. H- how did you become the boss? Because you became, if I'm not mistaken, the boss of the whole operation. Yeah. Um, how did that happen?
0: It had happened during, actually, it, it precipitated during that time when I had mentioned we had worked 28 nights in a row. I don't know if I had told you this no, or No, you never told me that. Well, there was a point at which we would worked 28 nights in a row. And there were guys that I had talked to that would say that it was more nights than that, but I left it at 28 nights that we had moved no less than 25 tons on that island and through that little town every single night for almost a full month. The houses got full and one during the day. They got emptied during the night. They got emptied during the day. They got filled during the day. They got emptied back and forth, and the whole town is doing this. Well, during this run of 28 nights, we had done one, and I mentioned this earlier, at 55 tons, 110,000 pounds we brought in one night just to see if we could do it. You know, I mean, it wasn't about the money after all. It was about just getting it done, getting the work done. Excuse me. So, um... You can't always work the same guys. Like our boat would work one night, two nights, maybe three nights. And then you got to take some days off, man, because I mean, it's heavy like, work. Like I said, yeah. I mean, not only are you doing the stone crabbing during the day as subterfuge to what you're doing at night, you got to do both jobs. I mean, just stone crabbing will make a man out of you. Jesus, but you add this other shit mm. when you're moving 800 or 1,000 bales a night. Dude, that'll make an extra man out of you. But you can't do that, can't keep doing that. That's why everybody has to be involved. That's why you got so many people working so we can take a break. Well, the last night I worked was that 55-ton night. And I just, uh, the next day, I woke up, you know, and I was, you know, it's all good. I don't have to work and this kind of shit. I don't have to go crabbing or anything like that. And I get back to... um. You know, I get up and I decide maybe I walk over, just walk over to one of the houses and see how it's going. You know how the shore crew is. You know how the shore crew is doing, and they're doing their thing. They're unloading vans and cars and shit. You know, and you kick them on the bumper like that. Well, the guys that are driving the stuff on the road after we brought it in, we have our escape with that chase boat I alluded to. Well, the guys on the road who are actually driving, and there could be anywhere from forty cars, trucks, vans um, Broncos, you name it, whatever you can stick a pail of weed in. I mean, just a regular, normal car, you can get 11 bales of shit in just to get it gone. That's why, that's why most of the town gets involved and a lot of the ladies in town get involved in driving this too, because it's 15 grand a trip. If you're hauling a van and that's 15 grand or it's 30 grand a trip and that's 15 grand to the driver for one trip to Miami and back. That's four hours of your day. So as I'm having this day off, I can remember there was, the last during my last day off, um, I was given a wrecking bar and a chainsaw, and so was my buddy Jimmy. And he, this guy, Daryl, who was one of the five brothers, Daniel's brothers I told you about, he points at this Winnebago, brand new, 40 foot, it had 125 miles on it. Most of those miles were getting it from Fort Myers back to Everglades, where it came from, (laughs) where they bought it from. And uh, he said, I need you and Jimmy to go in there with this wrecking bar and chainsaw, and I need you to cut and gut everything from the windows down, get it the hell out of that thing. I mean, tear it out of there. From the windows up, like the cabinets and the mirrors and the curtains and everything like that, you know, leave that shit there. And I said, uh, okay, you know, no problem. So we go in there and we fire the chainsaw up in the wrecking bar. We even took the chairs out, the captain's chairs, the driver's chair and everything. I, I mean, I, we took it all. They put airbags in the springs and inflated them so that it, when they put 11,500 pounds of bales in this thing, it wasn't going to spark the highway on the way to Miami, you know, so wouldn't
1: want them out.
0: It, it sat nice and staunch like it was supposed to, just like it was empty. And uh, me, like a dumbass, I go over to check the house out, how it's doing, and they got this van loaded, it's ready to go, and Daryl's trying to figure out who to get it, how to get it over to Miami, and he sees me coming. Now, I've been doing this for a number of years now, and he knew me that, you know, these bosses, these guys know, they know who I am, and um, because I work offshore, I unload their goddamn freighters and shit, you know, their jobs and stuff, and... Um, he asked me, he said, Timmy, I need you to do me a favor if you wouldn't mind. And I'm thinking, Oh God. I know what he's gonna ask me. He went he asked me if I would drive that Winnebago to Miami for him. Because it couldn't go to you now what we typically do, the scenario by which this whole thing works is typically the cars and the vans and the trucks and the pickup trucks and those things that are typically loaded like that will drive to a plaza or a strip mall somewhere in East Miami off of what's called Chrome Avenue. Um, a little town maybe east of Miami or west of Miami called, called uh, Chrome, uh, um, Kendall, pull into a plaza or a strip mall or something like that where we'd have another guy that knows us and the drivers and everybody with the people who actually own it, the Cubans from Miami. He'd be standing there with a guy going, well, that's our car just pulled in, that's our van, that's our truck, and he's pointing out all these different vehicles of ours that are pulling in. Our people get out their people get in, they go drive it to wherever and unload it and bring it back empty. Our people get back in and empty and go load it again if there's time to do it. So there's always a separation between the guys in Miami don't know where it came from and the guys in Everglades don't know where it's going in Miami, so nobody can tell on anybody. And even if our guys got caught in our own vehicle which they never do because we've got an out for them guys as well, everybody driving. We've got our boat that can get us off. We've got no less than 8 or 10 to 12 guys and gals whose job, is, only job is to drive to that plaza and back to Everglades all day long. And they're always staggered, 12 of them driving. So there's always somebody on the road. Where if one of these drivers that's driving a load to Miami gets stopped, all he has to do is now you're a thousand, maybe two thousand, maybe a little more heavier than you're supposed to be, and you're a van or you're a truck. And well, you wait till whoever stopped you to get between you and your vehicle, throw that bitch reverse and hammer down on it and take that front end out of his car, man. Because I mean, just knock the shit out of it, man, and put it in drive and haul ass. Because he's not gonna chase you, because he's fucking he had it, man. His car's had it. But you can't outrun his radio. All you need to do is get out of sight of him in one of our spotters and get out and get into one of our spotter's cars and you're gone. Because when you got b- before you got stopped, you were already on the radio calling me or calling whoever saying, Hey, whoever owns the car, blah, blah, blah. We've already called them. They've already been on the phone with the cops saying, Hey, dude, I just looked out the driveway. I noticed my car's been gone, and my truck's gone, and my van's gone. I-, I think it's been stolen. <laughs> <laughs> and like you said earlier, and they get it back.
1: That's crazy. It
0: relieves them of that, you know, responsibility. But you know, they were, you know, there are different different pay scales for different parts of the operation. Like you asked me earlier, um, how it all worked. You know, well, going offshore and unloading these freighters is the most lucrative of the, of the of the pay scale. And I just fell right into that. I had no idea. I'm making, you know, like as, as much as like I said, a hundred thousand a night. The next guy who's making any significant, any kind of money at all would be the guy that owns the home that you're packing the stuff into. He can make, you know, 50, 75,000 bucks just just for letting him use the house for a few hours overnight. And then you've got the guys that are handling the bales that are moving those. Those are five grand each. Everybody that's moving and handling and tossing bales, that's five grand each. Um, then you've got the guys that are, that own the vehicles that you're driving, they're getting paid anywhere from fifteen to thirty thousand dollars a vehicle. Out of that money, then you pay the drive that guy or gal that's driving for you. Mm. You know, and then from there, it's it goes um, to the spotters who are paid ten thousand dollars every single day just to drive. You've to got keep to a watch out. You to keep a watch out. If you get stopped, they'll pick you up and they'll take you home. So how did you end up becoming the boss of the operation? Okay. Um, And that's perfect because this this is an excellent segue right into that question. That van that I had serendipitously wound up being chosen to drive to Miami, I was the butthole that had to get in there. And because there was no seat, we'd actually taken a bailout so somebody could get down in between there and drive the damn thing. And it wound up being me. Because the owner of the stuff, the guy whose job it was, had called me and asked me, Timmy, he said, I need to, well, like I said, I had to ask you a question. I'm thinking, oh, God, now here we go. Well, he wanted me to drive this because, um, um, because he needed somebody that he could absolutely trust. And that was only because... It wasn't able to go to the spot where everything else was going, to this plaza, because you get within 40 feet of this damn thing, you can smell it. I mean, it was, it's was it got, you know, 11,500 pounds of, you know, shit. It's almost, almost got six tons of weed in it. It had to go right straight to the house. There was no exchange in drivers or anything. You had to go right, you know, you had to go right to the house with it. And in order to do that, you needed to be trusted, absolutely trusted. But not only was I to to take that over there, but I was there to spend the day. And when the load stopped coming for that day, then I would drive a car full of money back to them that evening. That's why they needed this this trust thing. And I reluctantly I agreed only because of who it was that asked me to do it. Plus, he said he'd give me another thirty five grand if I just. I mean, it's a two hour drive for thirty five, another thirty five grand. I'm like, okay, why not? You know what the hell? You know so. I, you know, climb in behind the wheel of this thing, this behemoth, and here I go. I'm on this 120 mile truck across Everglades to Miami. That's how that's Florida at its widest point. It's 125 miles. And I get to Miami, I get to Chrome Avenue, and I go past the turn where normally where normally the people would turn and and you know to drop their stuff off. And I go almost to homestead and I'm being guided by radio to making these turns here, turns here, and there here. And I wind up in this orchard this Orange Grove that's somewhere out in the middle of nowhere land. And I come across this house. It opens up into this I mean, this house must have been some doper's idea of, you know, his fame and fortune, like Tony Montana built that god awful house that he built in the movie, which was fictional, but nevertheless, everybody wanted to be a Tony Montana kind of guy, you know, in those days. But it was it was it was literally a um um and I almost identical uh of of a, of a English castle it had the big spires on the corners and it had the this and the thing and I mean it just absolutely did not belong in that orange grove man it was just out of this world <clears throat> only because the guy was stupid enough to have the money to build a crazy thing like this so I pull in I empty you know I get out of the van they start doing their thing unloading and putting the load under the house and I go inside and then I'm introducing myself and shit you know and they're playing poker and they're drinking and they're you know they're doing coke and stuff, which I didn't. I wasn't doing any coke. I wasn't doing any drinking. I will play you know, you know a little bit of poker with you, but you know I got I got I got to be straight to get home, man. So I stayed the whole day there and I got to know these guys. And you um, know, skipping forward, I you know drove the car back to the Everglades and everything was cool with Daryl and all that was kind of kind of cool, but. Uh, Between then and over the next three weeks comes what's called Operation Everglades number 2. This was a federally uh, funded operation that involved over 250 federal agents from every branch of law enforcement here in North America. That's ATF, which is um, um, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. That's FBI, there's Customs, there's DEA, there's FBI and, and agencies such as those and specialized agencies for drug interdiction and what have you came down to that little town. Now, this is the second year they came. First year in 1983 they came, but nobody was there. (laughs) All these agents showed up and everybody was gone because the first and second generations had such great intelligence. Hell, they had, like I said, senators and congressmen and judges and people like that on their payroll. Well, they knew two weeks before they got there that they were coming, so when they showed up, nobody was there, so it was a big flop, right? It was a huge embarrassment. So one year to the day, here they come again in 1984. That's when the adults decided, okay, these guys aren't going to give up, so let's just, you know, let's just sit on the front porch and, you know, light our cigarettes and have a smoke and wait for the show to start. So they, they just, you know... Sat there and waited, and here they come. I mean, all, all these 250 plus federal agents again blocked off the road, blocked off the town, and they started affecting arrests, and that's when they started making a significant difference in the impact of what was going on. This is when now they've taken the guys who were who were working us kids. These were now um, the suspects, the the more visible type of characters. Mm. But there wasn't that many of them. They still had no clue that half the town was involved. They only knew, you know, to just a small, very, very small degree to which this was really happening. And it involved just these five brothers and a little bit of this and what they were doing and this and that. Well, they accumulated what they did based upon what they seized from these five brothers. Now, at their sentencing prior to my taking over, at their sentencing, they're standing in front of a federal magistrate over in Miami, and the and that magistrate is literally reading from his um, list of seizures that they've got. And he's up there, and they hear the pages are flipping and turning and shit, you know, for like five minutes, this guy's going through paperwork. Excuse me. And... Uh, he puts the papers down. He puts his glasses down, and he looks at these five brothers standing there in front of him. They're all standing there waiting, you know. And he says, "Um, um you know, absolute. You know, uh, to be honest with you, gentlemen, he says I have absolutely no idea what to do with people like you." <laughs> he says, "I have never in my years as a magistrate ever come across anybody quite like you." He says, "There are no. There are no guidelines for people like you." He says, you have a, now he's reading their list of seizures. Yeah. You have a, you have a Netherlands Antilles holding company that's worth eight and some odd million dollars. And it's holding numerous properties around the Caribbean. Here in the States alone, you've got houses, hotels, motels, uh, timeshare rentals. You've got home rentals. You've got apartment rentals. You've got apartment buildings. You've got. Um, boats, planes, cars. Um, not only that, sir, gentlemen, he says, we've seized 580,000 pounds of marijuana from you people. <laughs> and I'm thinking who in the hell's got half a million pounds of shit laying around, right? Well, These we guys do. do.
1: So when they became visible, is that when you took over? Well. Is when the heat was on them? And then they they decided. Listen, it's probably best if we pass the reins to someone else.
0: Well, no, it, no, it really it didn't happen quite quite that way. Very, very similar, but not quite. What wound up happening was these guys were the brothers, the five brothers. Now the four brothers, the older brothers, had never been in trouble in their lives. Never before they had been sentenced for you know anything. The youngest brother, Craig, which today is still, I mean, they're all still my friends, but Craig is still one of my dearest friends. He was the youngest of the five. We were closer. This would have been his second time now being sentenced for this very crime, you know, importation. And the judge made him aware of that. So he's shuffling through the paperwork, and he says, okay, gentlemen, well, here we go. He goes, I'm just going to tell you again. He says, "Um, this 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 is what I got. So the four brothers who had never been arrested before... Federal magistrate gave him thirty six months.
1: <laughs> it always blows my two, mind that like pe- years. people caught with large quantities, right, of substances, often don't end up serving that much time. But people on the streets, everyday people, when That's they're ridiculous. caught with a little bit, they end up spending years. Sometimes.
0: Well, then you have now you have the difference between uh, the federal judicial system and the state judicial system. Uh, at those times, during those years, in those earlier years, this, the federal sentencing guidelines didn't provide for, for sentences that involved those quantities, those amounts of, of seizure and those amounts of, of, of just marijuana alone. And they could only go by the guidelines that, was, that, was, that were given to them, you know, within the statutes. And that's when they got to Craig as being your second time. The the magistrate looks over at Craig and he goes, let me remind you now. He goes, you know, once again, uh, Mr. Daniels, this is your second time. And Craig's like, you know, he's real solemn. He's like, yes, sir, I understand. And the judge is like, you know, once again, he says, Mr. Daniels, he says, I have have no idea what to do with somebody like you. He looks him right in the eye. And I'm reading from the transcripts and Craig's telling me this at the same time I'm interviewing him, right? He's going... Judge looked me right in the eye and he asked me, "Does five years sound like a long time to you?" <laughs> Craig looks at him and goes, "Yo, that sounds like a hell of a long time to me, sir." <laughs> guy gives him five years. Oh, no. Two and a half years. He's done. He's out. You know, he's gets good time, game time. I mean, unreal. And I wanted to know.
1: So, how how long were you doing this operation for? How long were you smuggling weed for?
0: Okay, up until that point, I was doing it from seventy nine to eighty four. The 84 is the time I'm telling you about now they're being arraigned, and now they're going to go to prison. So while they're in prison, the guy that I met at that house while I was in Miami that day, who nobody had ever met except those guys that went to prison, the big dogs, George was at that house I stayed at all day. These guys go to prison. Three months later, I get a knock on my door. It took these guys almost a month to find a guy named Timmy in this face. They got to my door and found me and said, Timmy, we got work to do, dude. Can you do this? And I just went, yeah, hell yeah, I can do it, man. So I just went back. The the, the infrastructure to the whole mechanism was still there, all us kids. All us guys were doing the work that the adults weren't doing. Hmm. So we knew how to do it. The only thing I didn't know was where to go, who to buy from, what connections, and that's those are the connections that I inherited from those older generations yeah. who I had gone to go see and sought out that information. So when I did go to Columbia for that first time to meet the boss, he knew I was coming. I knew I was going to, and who we were going to meet, but we didn't know one another. The only reason that I ever got along with anybody I worked with in the Caribbean was because all our families had worked together. For
1: so many generations. For so
0: many different generations. That's that's why there was no violence in what it was we were doing at that level.
1: And how did you eventually go down? Because I know that you were arrested. Um, yeah. So can you just tell me the sequence of events that led to you serving time in prison?
0: Yeah, sure. I can, uh, I can give you a quick synopsis of that whole event.
1: So, yeah, the sequence of events that led up to you getting arrested.
0: Right, yeah. Um, there had been a, you know... When we work, you know, my crew's always expected to show up and be sober and be ready to work because because you know there's a lot of joviality going on within the world we live. We're kids, man, you know, of course, we're goofing off, we're having a time of our lives, obviously. But when it comes time to do what we needed to do, it got serious. There was no you did there was no screwing around. there was no time to fart around. I mean, and and even when it came time to uh, you know when it came time to work on the boats, the vessels that were coming to unload us and go through the islands and stuff. We had changed from what the old-timers were doing. We were using what were called T-crafts and boats built by a, uh, a couple of brothers in, in Naples designed by us, especially for us, to do the type of work we needed to do. And the only other engines, the only engines that were used were 235 routes. The reason for that was because the older generations used to have their mechanics come and fix the boats and fix the engines and this kind of shit. Well, I was always under the impression that if that damn motor left you sitting, get the fuck rid of it, put a new one on there because you can afford it and don't let don't put a, another fix a motor that's left you sit why why use it again mm. so we would take our motors and of course you can't use brand new motors out of the box they have to be broken in but we knew every backwater guide there was from Everglades City to Pine Island and every backwater guide was given a motor by us to go use and break in. When they get to so many hours, that captain, all he did was call the mechanic and Sammy would send a guy to go take that motor off and another, or two guys and take that motor off and hang a new one. So all these backwater guides from Naples to Pine Island are getting all brand new motors and we're getting motors that are already broken in. So when my guy calls and says, I got a problem with this boat, Sammy, you don't come and wrench on your boat. That's bullshit. He'll come with two, three guys. He'll take that piece of shit off and hang one that's brand new back on there you know it's not going to leave you sitting. So we did our amped up and we did our thing, you know, in, in that way. But, um, I had, um, started to, to do loads bigger and, and work with different crews. And, um, we were using, uh, one night I was doing 57,000 pounds of Colombian material coming in and I was going to use two crews my Everglades city crew and a Pine Island crew, which I worked before, but I had never been hands-on with, um, we were going to split the load between the two places. to just make it a little bit more confusing, a little more subterfuge that way. Well, I opted to go up and work with the, with the Pine Island crew that night. And um, um, one of the guys that had been working with us in a, in a family, a generational family for one of the founding families for years and years had uh, somehow managed to get himself in trouble in Colombia when he wasn't working with us. He was doing some cocaine deal that went south or whatever, and he mm-hmm. got put in prison. But the U.S. government knew who he was, went down to talk to him and made him a deal and said, look, we'll get you out of this hellhole. Yeah. You come back with us and work with us. So was he
1: working with them and ratting on you guys?
0: He was the guy that I was hiring to run. Remember I was talking about the chase boat that ran alongside yeah. us? He was captaining that chase boat. So he knew right from the start where, when, how all this shit was happening, and once he knew, they knew. So here we are doing fifty-seven thousand pounds one night. I'm in the Pine Island, out in the middle of bumfuck nowhere on this island that nobody's got any business being. But even the even the the locals never go out there. The locals are the only guys that I'm working with. That only they're the only ones that know this place that we went to existed. It was an old, worn-down, grown-over road that went back to a dock breaking down, you know, almost washed away, just enough to back a U-Haul truck down there that I was going to fill and load with and drive out. So the job gets started. It's like 1, 2 in the morning, and the, here comes the bales, and we get, I don't know, four, five, six boats, 8 boats show up. We get 100, you know, 150 or so pieces of bales on the on the truck, and all of a sudden the boats stop coming. The guys, the chatter on the radio stops. Silence. A few minutes go by, and I don't want to say anything. And the guy gets on the radio. My spotter out by the road, through the woods a little ways. He goes, "Timmy," he said, "A car just pulled up in here. It backed out and went on. You know, turned around and went back the way it came." He said, and I went, "Damn to myself!" I'm thinking, "That that ain't right. We're all in middle bum book nowhere. There shouldn't be anybody out here, man." You know, so I go walking out there, and as he's imparting the story again to me. I look behind me and everybody that was with me back by the dock in and the, and the truck, they're all standing behind me because they know something ain't right. And as soon as he gets done telling me about the guy backed out and pulled, you could hear what sounded like 40 cars coming down the road, man. I mean, you know, that tire sound on yeah. asphalt <coughs> in the middle yeah. of the night, you hear that, <clears throat> that hum mm-hmm. of the tires. And, and if you run this way, there's a pine tree forest that you can just haul ass and I mean, just go. But if you go this way, there's about five acres of what's called a palmetto field. And those po- little palmetto palms, they don't grow any higher than maybe four, four five four four and a half feet. There's five acres of them. Everybody takes off running this way. And as soon as I see the headlights of the first car start to come into view, I can just make out the headlights of the car and the front of the car itself. And what way do I go? That way toward the palmettos. <laughs> I get about. So did you
1: leave all of the stuff there? Did, uh,
0: yeah, fucking let them have it, man. You know, we were all running and just trying to get the hell out of there. You know, there's no way they could figure out who's belong who it belonged to. And where did you run to? I ran about. I got about 25 feet into the palmettos, and that's as far as I got before that car got visible. And I crunched in and I squatted down to where they couldn't see my head, and I could see under the branches of the palmettos I'm looking at. The driver's door, this guy's Bronco, the interior light go on, I see his feet stepping on the ground, and all I can hear is cars screeching to a halt going, there's guys running over there, there's guys running over there, and There's you know, and they're chasing, cars are screaming out of there, and they're going, they're trying to catch my guys, right? So the guy, in the and I'm, dude, the whole time, I'm, shit, I'm 25 feet away. I'm right there, but it's dark, Right. And and it's not too uncommon where you have a, a load come in that, that uh, an illegal will come with it, a couple of Venezuelans or a couple of Colombians. will come along for the ride and they'll get off with of the load and they'll just disappear. You know, well this one Colombian guy gets off and he runs the same ass way I do, but I stopped and 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 this guy gets out of his truck and I can still hear him. <coughs> Crunching through the fucking bushes, right? And I'm thinking to myself, dude, stop running. Because if this guy takes off after you, he's tripping over me before he gets way anywhere near you, man. So all of a sudden, I don't hear anything. I'm thinking, oh, thank God almighty, stopped. you know. And, and um, the guy gets in the car and he takes off and he leaves. And a car, I can hear a car pull out up front and stop and it's still running And here he comes back in again. He pulls in, and I can tell it's the same one because it's the tan bronco, and he gets out, same boots, same feet. He shuts the door, and now it's just starting to get light. And, man, if I don't make a move,
1: it's— Because they'll start searching the surrounding area Dude, I'm right there. They're going to see me. And if the sun comes up, they'll see you. Yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm right there. So— he goes to walk back in there, and the guy in the car yells, hey, where are you going? He says, I'm going to go back in and see what we got. The guy goes, well, wait a minute, I'll go with you. And I'm thinking, oh, this is perfect, right? Mm. And, and I'm also thinking, well, they go walking back. I give them enough time, and, I'm, and the car's still running. And I'm thinking, if there's somebody sitting in the car, dude, one of two things is going to happen. He's going to either shoot me, he's going to have to tackle me, he's going to have to subdue me, or I'm going to knock his ass out and knock, knock him over and keep on running, dude, and he's not going to find me, Right. And I, I, I look up over. And there's nobody. I took off running, dude. And now the sun's up, and I must have ran for um, until I, I, couldn't breathe anymore. I dive under the bushes and I cover myself up with all kinds of crap. And I listen there the whole day. I lay there. As soon as I realized nobody was following me, you know, and you know, I could lay there and kind of. Huh, I'm hearing the helicopters, and I'm hearing I'm towing my truck out of the woods and shit, you know, all those all that with all the weed in it and shit, and. I lay there till you know, in the afternoon, it's starting to get a little, you know, dim out. And I'm falling asleep. I'm starting to relax. And all of a sudden, I'm woken up by the sound of this crackling sound of leaves and crunching. And I open my eyes up and I see out of the corner of my eye, I see this bobcat. And this thing's probably about 80 pounds, if it's a pound. It's a good-sized kitty cat. And it's crunched down and it's like doing one of these things at me. Through the woods, because it sees my eyes and my facial movements, but it can't see me. So it's like homing in on what the fuck is that? And I'm thinking to myself right away, dude, I spent the whole day and night getting away from the law, trying not to get caught on to get eaten by this fucking thing, right? (laughs) And I, the only thing I could think of to do is just jump up and scream and throw the branches and the leaves and the bushes everywhere. Right away. I went like that, and this thing did three flips in the air, and it landed on the ground, and it took off through the bushes like it was shot out of a cannon. <laughs> that was the last I saw of it. So what happened after <laughs> that happened? You, you went home, I'm assuming. Well, after that, I made my way out of the woods, alongside of the woods. I walked to a fish house. It's 2.30 in the morning, and at that time of the year, or in those years, there's no cell phone. There's a lit um, um, a phone box in the parking lot. The lights are on in the fish house, which is not normal. I'm thinking, you know, what these people should have gone home a long time ago or whatever. But I'm sitting there picking the crap off of me trying to figure out how am I going to get to that phone booth without, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb mm. And two. Because I'm sure in the they morning. were looking
1: for you. They probably had word that Well, just Ryan. the yeah. night
0: before, people yeah. were running and shit, you yeah. know. So if I happen to be the only one in a phone booth, so it wasn't two minutes later, here come two shrimp boats pulling in and docking and they unload their catch and the guys on the boat go to the phone to start calling for their rides home. So I just kind of sauntered on down there and got in line with the guys on the boat. When it was my turn, I went to taxi, you know, taxis in the phone book. And the first number I pointed to, that's the one I called. And I told that guy, I said, I don't care where the hell you're coming from. I don't care how long it takes you. I'll give you $600 cash in your lap. When you get here, just take me to Punta Gorda and get me, you know, put me in a motel room. I'm tired of fishing. I want to go home. The guy says, you you promise you're going to be there. And while I'm on the phone, here comes a sheriff deputy through the parking lot, around me, and around this empty parking lot. And he goes out this other entrance over here and he goes down the street and takes off. Now I'm thinking if I had to come into this phone booth and talk and I'm standing here talking and he drives through here and I'm the only one here.
1: He's going to question me. He's going to
0: say something to me. So thank God all these people showed up. It was just a stroke of luck is how it happened. Forty minutes later, the taxi shows up. I threw $600 in his lap. I hunkered down in the back seat and said, take me into a hotel. I need to sleep.
1: <laughs> and then, can you tell me about
0: the day that you got arrested? The day I was arrested, I had a friend staying at the house. Um, he was uh, his, The house that he was renting was being sold. So I said, eh, come on over and hang out for a while. I got a room, you know, plenty of room. Well, one night, the, there's a knock on my door. It's like early, 3, 3 in the morning or so. Bang, 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 bang. And I look out the front drapes, you know, the curtains, and I see this one sheriff's deputy standing on the front porch, and then my dogs are barking. And Donald, he's like, mm, he comes walking out there, and I said, you know, answer the door, tell that asshole I'm not home. You know, I think maybe the neighbor's called about the dogs barking mm. or some shit. He answers the door, and that guy grabbed him by the collar and threw his ass like that, throws him out into the front yard, and he says, there's must have been Twenty guys out there dressed like ninjas. He said there was like ten of them had guns against my head, and I can hear this shit going on because my bedroom's just down the hallway, right? And they're yelling that they're yelling, "There's Tim Mcbride in that house!" And he's like no, asking for you, asking for me, and he's like, "Yeah, he's in there." <laughs> and <laughs> I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, thanks, Donald." You know, so fuck. Here they come, you know. And, and I'm looking, I'm laying in bed, and there's these flashlights shit's going all up and down the hallway, right? I get out of bed, and I look around the corner. A guy hits me right in the face with a spotlight. And I'm like, get that fucking light out of my eyes. And he's like, get on the ground. Get your hands behind your head. You know, this and that. So I'm down. The next thing I know, five, six, seven guys are tackling me. Dude, I'm in my fucking underwear. You know, <laughs> you think I was Escobar or, or or you know El Chapo or fucking somebody. Well, to
1: them, like we said earlier, at the time, you were. Yeah, I mean they because have no idea. Weed that, was yeah. was seen very differently back then.
0: E- exactly, we're not we're put in the same class as everybody else, you know. Regardless, I never saw like I said one ever did I see a gun in my life ever growing up as kids. What parent in their right mind would put kids at at risk and at danger if there was gunplay going on? Mm. No parent in their right mind would have a kid out unloading a freighter if they thought they were going to get killed doing it. You know that kind of thing. So I'm sitting there on my couch waiting, you know, they're searched the house, and all they had was an, an arrest for me. They didn't have any seizures or anything like that. Well, they'd go to take me out. I'm sitting there in my fucking underwear. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck? You know, give me clothes. He said, I said, take me back to my room and let me get clothes. You just wait right there, this guy's telling me this asshole. And he's like, Tell, where's your clothes? I said, well, you know, the room you tack where you tackled me, closet closest to the door, just open it up, you know, slide the doors open, and there's racks of clothes, and I just grab jeans and a shirt and socks and let's go. Well, he goes in there. He's not in there 10 seconds, and I, and I hear him saying, holy shit, and I yell back there, wrong closet, you know, because <laughs> there's a pound of weed in there. No, dude, he opens my closet up, and I've got these four-by-three-foot-deep-by-four-and-a-half-foot-tall by safes, oh, six goodness. of them stacked in there on top of one another, $6.7 million cash. How much? $6.7 million in cash.
1: And, Was that all of the money that you had at the time?
0: No, hell no. There was more in the attic, but they never searched the attic. You know, my house in that condominium that I have in Marco Island, on the way to Marco Island, I still had, but I had to move out of there because I have so much money stuffed in the air conditioning vents that the air won't come out. (laughs) So I had to buy this house. So I got this house, but they weren't there only to get me. They didn't have any search warrant. And he goes, he comes back out and throws my clothes at me and he goes... What do you got in those safes back there? And I said, Well, you show me the little piece of paper that says that I have to open them for you. And I'll be happy to open them for you. Well, he's like, Meh, 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 because they didn't have that, right? So they take my ass and march me out of there. The, and it was maybe, it was probably three hours later by the time I'd been to customs and FBI and CIA and Secret Service, because everybody wanted a piece of my ass, that I finally have an opportunity for a phone call. And who do I call first? I call my brother to go over to the house as fast as you can fucking get there and get my closet cleaned the fuck out, you know, and then call Dennis, my attorney, (laughs) and let him know what's going on, you know, so.
1: What was the process? How long did the trial last? And how much time did you end up serving?
0: I was indicted originally with 100, um, indicted originally 160 years mandatory to life and I was given a $16 million fine. Four counts, or four indictments I was given, four counts on each indictment, each added to a million dollars each. Each count was a mandatory 10 to life. There's four on each one. That's 16 altogether, so that's 160 years. That's the minimum they can give me. They can't give me any less than that because that's the mandatory. That's what I started out with when I was, you know, arraigned and brought before the magistrate. So I'm sitting there and she's going through these, you know my C you know the Caesar the the um the front page of the Naples Daily News, which I'll give you a, a copy of that you can put up. says the uh, area part of Na- u uh, s. drag net thirty eight helped import over one hundred and fifty tons, agents say, and one hundred and fifty tons plus. well that over one hundred and fifty tons, nearly four hundred thousand pounds three weeks into this investigation they were doing, they didn't realize that that was only a week's work, <laughs> you know, so. They didn't realize it was 30 million dollars. They had no idea, Roughly. you know, the significance of what it was, the bottle of, you know, the can of worms they'd opened up, you know. So one thing led to another and, you know, in a very serendipitous way of the government going, you know, getting around the uh, mandatory minimum know, so Now now the kids that are getting arrested are, are getting life sentences when a year before their fathers and uncles and grandpas and cousins and everybody like that are getting 12 months, 14 months, 13 months, you know, and things like that. So what the government did by design rather than accident was within this agreement, you plea agreement, you make an agreement to cooperate with the United States government, because this is the only way you're going to get out from under a 40 year mandatory to life sentence is give us some cooperation. Well, in lieu of that cooperation, you were given immunity from prosecution from everything that you've done to, that will allow you to speak freely without retribution on these points. But they'll hold one count back in order to give you some sort of justice, punishment, probation, or hmm. slap on the wrist, let you go home, whatever they can do at that point. So because everybody that they were getting, <clears throat> and they were getting hundreds of people now, I mean, the dominoes were falling because when they got the guy on the chase boat out of prison and he started, a couple of the younger kids were on our cruise, he's like, dude, they're saying your name. This is what's up. This is what you need to do. Mm. They all went into witness protection ultimately. They were telling us, you know, they got your names. Here we go. This is what we're doing. So when, they, when the op, uh, uh, um, uh, um, ability to tell them what they wanted with this... Um, um, immunity clause came about, everybody was getting the same deal. Mm. So when it came time for, you know, Teddy, Jimmy, and Willie, their turn, dude, they're saying your names, you know, tell them Jimmy and, and Ronnie and, and Scott's name because they took this deal. They have immunity from prosecution. Tell them their names because you can't hurt them now, right? Mm. They have immunity. So everybody's telling on everybody back and forth when are not hurting one another. Everyone's just talking about the people that have already been arrested. Yeah, yeah. but... The government hearing the same names being said over and over is not the point. The point is, to them, is that they're getting all the right people because mm. they're saying all the right names. It's like confirmation for them. Yes. So this cooperation aspect was given to crew members and and younger, you know and the bail handlers and the people under me. What they wanted from me was, who am I talking to in Miami and where in the Caribbean all over the hell in place and gone and where am I flying, who am I flying to see? Well, I can't tell you that. I'm sorry, you know, uh, even though all the years that I grew up in this industry and and did what I did when I finally said, okay, let's take the ball and let's do some more, was there never any gunplay involved in this thing, and nobody ever threatened my life, nobody in every country I was ever in threatened my life over this shit, it was was too much money being made, Mm -hmm. you know, and they had to understand that, you know, but um, you take one of these guys and say their name and throw them under the bus, they're going to do what they're very good at. And that's find your family. Find your brothers, your mothers, your cousins, your uncles, your sisters, your cousins, the dog and the cat, and get fucking rid of them. That's what they're good at. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do that.
1: So how did you end up spending only four years?
0: Well, what wound up happening was um, they kept taking me out of my cell. And by they, I mean the United States District Attorney um, um, investigators and the United States Treasury investigators in questioning me and asking me about how was I able to do this all these years and not get caught? Well, I can tell you because the game's over, but I can't tell you any names. If you can glean from any, any names from anything that I might be telling you, then more power to you, but I won't give you a name. So hmm. I started telling them how stupid they are. You know, First of all, the two Treasury agents, I'm asking how, if they understand the geography of Everglades City, Yeah. Okay. How many roads are there going into the Everglades and how many roads coming out? There's one. How many roads coming from Everglades City to Miami and back is there? There's one. How do you think all those millions of pounds of pot got from that little island to Miami, man? It didn't go over there on the backs of pelicans and porpoises. It went down that one goddamn road in and one goddamn road out. And nine times out of ten, my people are waving at you as they're going about it. You know, That's how stupid you people are. Hide in plain sight is what this is called, and we talked about that earlier. But And I kept telling them about the amounts the 1.6 million uh, uh, pounds in a month, uh, the amounts of money, the money house at any one time with two to $300 million in cash that I would go to get paid every now and then. Call me up. It's time to get paid, Timmy. You know, come and get some cash. You know, there'd be days that I'd spend over there counting money when I should be in Columbia. Days I'm counting money when I should be unloading a mm-hmm. boat. That's when we learned how to weigh it.
1: So it was your cooperation ultimately that
0: It was my my money, my pay.
1: But your cooperation that led them to giving you a lenient sentence.
0: Yeah, what I did was, you know, they they were very appreciative of the the insight into my world the judge said at my sentencing. She was very appreciative of that. But the kind of cooperation that they wanted was cooperation I wasn't willing to get. So I didn't get below the mandatory minimum. But at the same time my $1,200,000 attorney they couldn't cap my sentence and give me more than 20. So it was no less than 10, no more than 20. But because they respected the fact that I told them how this all worked, the invaluable way this whole mechanism worked, she decided to hit me in the middle of the road and give me the mandatory 10 years. When I wound up in prison, everybody has a job in prison. They have to work something. The job I was given when I first worked in, in the FCI, which is the old prison in Tallahassee, that resembles, if anybody knows the movie, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. It's Prison looks like that. Um, but the cells aren't gated. They're are, are units with 175 convicts on each side in each unit, but there's two guys in a cubicle. And you get on the top bunk, you can see everybody in the room like that. So um, what wound up happening was um, at my sentencing... She, um, she gave me. You know, my sentence was ten years at, at federal correctional institution in, in Tallahassee, which is the hub of education within the federal Bureau of Prison system. If you want an education, this is where you transfer to. She said, "I'm sending you here because I would like you to be able to make a to to earn the the knowledge in order to make the kind of living you're accustomed to and the money that you're accustomed to making." I almost laughed right in her face. <laughs> because I'm thinking, where in the hell are you going to tell me how to make $2 million a night, you know? But I'm saying this in my head, right? Well, long story short, I get to prison and my job was construction. I meet a guy in the prison yard working out, Rolando, who works in the education building, which is another compound where they have a legal library that has, you know, every convict is supposed to have access to legal material. And the people who help you through that legal material are convicts that learn the job, you know? So... I don't want to build a prison. I want to work there. So long story short, I become a clerk in the law library. Uh, Rolando and I take a correspondence course through the University of Honolulu, and I get a degree in law. And I get a degree, a degree in how to how to shepherdize law, how to work my way through it and find, you know, similar cases that are citing similar case law because it's precedent law here in the United States, you do something that is parallel to what I'm doing. You can't get more time than me, or I can't get more time than you. It has to be equal. So this is what I learned how to do. And Dennis, the head of the law library who hired me, was a writer in his own right. He's the one I learned how to how to integrate the, the, the sights and the sounds and the smells into the writing that I did when I wrote the book Saltwater Cowboy. And, um... Um, through the, through the work I did in the law library, I learned what the what their true definition of cooperation was, what the legal definition is. And I was sitting in front of the legal dictionary that defines ease, whether you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney, and it's Latin, and I'm running through and I come across the word cooperation. And that definition basically says if I give you something, uh, if you ask me for something and I give it to you, I have essentially cooperated with you. Well, they asked me how I did all of this shit, I told them. They asked me for my fine that they wanted in in, in money, I gave it to them. So I have essentially, by that definition, cooperated with them. Mm -hmm. So I wrote my own brief to the Middle Districts of Florida based on that definition of cooperation. And under their role of cooperation, my sentence went from 10 years to four. It took me three and a half years to get it there, and now I'm six months short by the time she reads this and agrees that, okay, four years.
1: I also wanted to know, just to end off, how much money were you, and you don't have to answer this, of course, but um, were you able to keep any of the money you made during those years?
0: Not a dime.
1: They seized everything.
0: Everything. There were several houses throughout the Caribbean that I just abandoned that I never went back to that I could care less about now. Um, money I was going through, like water, because I was looking at life, possibly life in prison. What do I need, mu- you know? What good is this money to me or anybody if I'm in prison for life? So I just went hog freaking wild doing the the most outrageous stuff a guy could do with money, like buy a car from a dealership, from a friend of mine who owns a dealership, pay for the car in cash, have a buddy come in the next day and test drive this car with that particular salesman that I know, take the car out on a test drive and beat the living shit out of it and drive it back. Well, it's not falling apart and park it back in the parking lot and get out. Of it. <laughs> Only to be standing there to have the salesman look at me and see me standing there and just start cussing me out when I can hear his voice cussing me out, you know, and shit. And he just trashed a brand new uh, uh, IROC Camaro because I bought it I so this guy could have the ride of his life. <laughs> I mean, just get rid of him. I mean, just. You're just getting rid of it all. Just get, buy seven, eight Jeeps, buddy of mine's but We buy eight Jeeps and we take these. Surely those were seized as well, though. Yeah, okay. we we take the Jeeps. We buy eight of them because they're under 10 grand. We buy them, we take them, you know, we leave our cars in the parking lot right there at the Jeep dealership. We take them out to a place called Bad Luck Prairie and we have one of the badass uh, bumper car um, shows you've ever seen in your life, man, with these brand new Jeeps. And we fuck them up to the point where there's one still in good enough shape to get us back into town. We park it back at the dealership, get in our cars, and drive home. <laughs>
1: just, just to end off, I want to know: Can you? I know we've mentioned it, but can you just tell people where they can find your book and the name of it?
0: Absolutely. The name of the book is "Saltwater Cowboy: The Rise and Fall of a Marijuana Empire," and we'll put up a picture of the book. Um, it's available on Amazon. If Amazon is av- if it's uh, available through Amazon in the country in which you are in now. Which it is in most places, and a lot of bookstores, you know, in your town, uh, will be happy to go ahead and, and purchase the book for you as well. Um, the first cop, the first edition hardcover copies are the f- are are very rare and very difficult to find now, and very expensive. Uh, I just saw one person selling it for almost two hundred and fifty five dollars for a first edition copy.
1: And how many copies have you sold?
0: I've I couldn't tell you. A lot, a lot. <laughs> okay, amazing. <laughs> Enough for the book is now in its second printing, which is a paperback printing of the book. But it's everything the hardcover is, except it doesn't have a hardcover; it's a paperback yeah. cover. And um, it's it's just one of those popular reads. in every review, one hundred and thirty-three now, I think, on Amazon, whereby each one of them says practically the same thing about being able to, you know, put the book up, pick the book up, but not being able to put it down again. until i finished it you know and that's you know as a writer nothing is more um um satisfying to to an author than to have your work turn out exactly how you intended
1: well that's exactly how i feel with the podcast when and people don't i don't think people realize but when you say how much you appreciate because a lot of work goes into it yes it really does mean a lot it doesn't just fly over your head
0: no 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 i i i understand the concept and how it works and and what it takes to produce and 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 make something like this a uh, an excellent platform for somebody like me to to springboard from, you know. And uh, I'm sure you're going to get you know you're going to do really really well in 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 because you're really good at what you do.
1: Thank you. You know.
0: And uh, your questions are relevant. And they, like I said, the you know we're kicking back here in my living room, you know, and just chilling. And I'm you know I'm I'm smoking a little weed myself, you know, but. Just this, a little this, bit. This is my life, and this is how I grew up. And you know, the way you see me now is the way you'll always see me if you meet me in person. You can um, you can find me on Instagram at original saltwater cowboy. You can find me on Facebook Timothy McBride Saltwater Cowboy. Um, you can uh, Google my name Tim McBride slash Everglades. And all the podcasts and all the news all the stories the the little clip I did with Viceland, which has now got around the world some close to a hundred plus million views on all platforms on, on the on different all different platforms. I've got 12 million viewers of that platform in Australia four and four million in New Zealand, three million in the Philippines. I mean uh, the story's getting around man
1: amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast Josh, and
0: I can't believe you're here,
1: dude I know, me neither
0: You know, this has Always. really been
1: cool Yeah, it's been, it's been awesome And I, I've loved sitting here at your house And uh, like you say You are very much exactly like you are On camera and off camera
0: Come on, boy, man
1: <laughs> So, thank you all for watching I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wide Awake Podcast Please go get yourself a copy of that book And I'll see you all very soon Love you, peace out